Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Good afternoon, everyone. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. And so actually, it works out really well because the talk for today actually applies to both Christmas and the New Year, so it works out. So the topic for today is called uh, New Beginnings, Back to Basics. So what do I mean by the concept of new beginnings? Okay, and what's the first thing that comes into our minds when we think of the word or the term new? What does it bring about, especially during the season of Christmas? We think of joy, excitement. With children, we think of like exploration and wonder and all this, all this joyous. And, and you notice in the hymns, we do a joyous uh, tune. And, you know, we, we think of times where in our lives, we love getting new things. You know, we, we think about Christmas and you, you see little kids, how excited they are. But we also see in our adult life, we get excited when we start a new job, right? Or our kids, actually we get excited as well when our kids go back to school, except for, for us, we're teachers. But um, so we get this excitement. And you're going to notice that the excitement parallels our age. What do I mean by that? What do we see with newborns, they're super exploratory. They're all about figuring out their senses, crawling on the ground, throwing everything's in their, in their mouth because they're excited about their taste buds. They're feeling things, they're seeing things, they're reacting to things, to touch, to feel, to everything. Right? Everything is new. Food is new, right? New places, new world. But what happens after a short while when we get older? What happens? Been there, done that. It gets old. It gets boring. Right? We get used to life. Right? Nothing is new anymore. We have lived a life of repetition. So what do people do next to fill that boredom, to feel that repetition. They supposedly move on to other activities like extreme sports, right? Fascinating hobbies, right? Go up the corporate ladder in their job, hoping for newer and better experiences. But alas, they're always disappointed because it never satisfies. Why is this the case? And we heard it today, and we hear it every week. I'll give you a little hint. We hear it at the conclusion of the Catholic epistle during the readings of the Divine Liturgy. What do we remind each other of every week? Do not love the world. An easy easy, uh, verse to remember Uh, 1 John 2, okay? That's the chapter you can find it in, verses 15 to 17. It says, do not love the world or the things in the world, for all that is in the world, pay attention to this, 
This is very important. All that is in the world are these three things. And in fact, all these three things lead to every vice of humanity, which is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And we're going to come back to that. Is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away. And we know that the world is passing away. It says it in Psalms 102. That the world is getting old like a garment. And that actually fits the scientific fact of the second law of thermodynamics for physics. It actually is getting old. It actually is wearing away. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So in other words, we're talking about the materialistic objects, the possessions, the things. And we know it's limited. It doesn't suffice. But then we, because of our faith, knows that there's someone far greater. Right? Beyond new beginnings. He never gets old never gets boring, never corrupts over time. He is eternal, beyond the tangible materialistic world. He redefines new. It's a new that we're still trying to figure out. And this is obviously Christ himself. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. But what does this new entails for us? It is a new that is beyond the material world, beyond what is tangible, beyond the senses. Because we know that the material will never quench the spiritual, because it's limited. And you notice they belong in different realms. We have the material world and the spiritual world. The material pleases the flesh, and the spiritual satisfies the spirit. And what is the definition of the spiritual? Who are we talking about here? It says it in John 4. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So the only way we're ever going to satisfy our spiritual hunger has to be through our faith, through the church, the sacraments. Christ does something that is far beyond a new beginning, a new year, and a new start. He lets us start over. And this is what I want to focus on for the rest of the the lesson today, is starting over. I don't want us to think that a new beginning is what it is. It's beyond that. We're beyond the new year. We're beyond the, the, uh, when we give ourselves a resolution. Okay? Not a year, not monthly, not weekly, not daily. We're not going to say, we'll start tomorrow. And Shereen says, I say this a lot. We'll start the next day. We'll start the following Monday. Right? We'll start on the new year. We'll start on the Coptic new year. 
We find a way to always find a new beginning, but we never want to get started. So you just you don't just have a New Year's resolution and a hope for a better year. You have this feeling of a redo. You get to start over and over and over again. It gives you the opportunity to hit pause, stop, erase, and rewind. And our faith has those two end parts that those that are not in the faith don't understand. We get to erase. We get to rewind. We get to start over. And how often do we start over? Every moment of our lives. Because what happens after just a couple of days after setting our goal? Oops, I did it. No, I'm just. Okay, it says, oops. I can't read up there. It's day two of 2023, and you have already messed up on your goal. But never fear, because our God is a God of new beginnings. Sorry, you can't see it up there. Uh, So I'm sure you recognize these slides from social media. Uh, Shireen shared it with me. It comes from Laura, uh, the owner of Coptic Dad and Mom. But now we're going to start to get a little deep. So what steps, so sorry, what stops us from starting every moment of our lives over and over again? Why can't we believe that sometimes? And I'm speaking for myself. Sometimes I do something wrong and I can't let it go. I have regret. I think of the past. Right? So we're talking about the everyday struggles with sin. Now, in the eyes of our beloved, how does God view sin? Grains of sand. Small little pebbles that he tosses, don't even think about it. But how do we view sin? We find it as a huge, dynamic boulder. And for some, unfortunately, it's too hard to carry. They can't carry it. And they feel like there's no escape. And for others, we can just, we, we, we kind of drag it along on our ankles. Like shackles. Right? People are imprisoned by their sins. People are slaved by their sins. They can't move on. And so there's two aspects of sin I want to talk about. Guilt and pride. These are the two things I want us to think about. Not just going into the new year, but in every moment of our lives throughout this year. Is guilt and pride. Before the sin, during the sin, and after the sin, what is happening to our guilt and pride? So for guilt. Guilt has a way, when it's not used properly, Self-sabotaging. We self-sabotage ourselves against sin. We allow sin to have more power and control through our own guilt. Okay? And I did a lot of research, and um, I looked up guilt a lot. And the best example I gave was by Bishop Angelos from London, who compares guilt to a smoke detector. 
when the smoke detector goes off and there's a fire alarm, how do we react? And there's three ways we can react to a smoke detector, how we can react to our own guilt. The first way I'm going to go over is the normal way. When someone hears a fire alarm smoke detector, they respond quickly to the noise and react by calling the fire department. It's a what? A wake-up call and get out. We use our senses. We can smell it. We can hear it. We can see it. What, what does it call for? Immediate attention and resolution. That's it. Guilt is not meant to be used as a constant reminder. It is meant as a wake-up call and get out. Okay? And we see this. For example, if we're going to a place we know we shouldn't be going to, right? We're watching something we shouldn't be watching. We hear things we shouldn't be hearing. And whatever it is, when we come across this before the sin happens, there's a guilt in us. We know, this, we know better than this. We know we're not supposed to do this. And then during the, the sin, we go to that party, we go to that place, which we know is toxic for us, and we stay there. And then what happens during the guilt, right? The sound alarms, it becomes louder and louder. It tells us to get out. And then after, the guilt doesn't end. It now tells you what? Look what you just did, shame on you. Rather than, hey, let's go fix it through the church. The fixing, it's very simple. It's what? Sacrament of, bapt- of what? Of repentance and confession. That's it. But then there are two other ways we can react to guilt, to react to the smoke detector. Is when we become non-responsive to our guilt. And we're going to see two polar opposites. The non-responsive is when guilt is an ongoing fire alarm that constantly goes off and we start to become desensitized to the noise. We no longer hear its sound. Then guilt has lost its purpose, its power. We no longer feel its effect. This happens when sin becomes a constant way of life. We can't tell if this sin is wrong or right. We've done it so often, it becomes a fabric of our being. It becomes inclusive into how we live our lives. So what was black and white at one time has now become fully gray. Sin has become numb and neutralized to the individual. They don't even know that they're doing it. But then there's the opposite effect. When we become submissive to the sin. We know it's wrong, but we react differently. And that is when guilt is an ongoing sound that becomes deafening and blaring that we cannot rid ourselves of its constant internal attacks. It eats us from the inside out. Okay, and then what happens when we feel like there's no escape? There's no way out? Unfortunately, people fall into what? Hopelessness and despair. And we know it can cause psychological issues, mental illness, and then it becomes life-threatening. 
okay? This becomes very dangerous. And in this danger danger zone, this is when individuals believe that the power of sin is greater than the love of God. And we know how powerful the love of God is. Nothing can contain it. But we believe that the sin is greater than the love of God. Um, I remember when me and my wife were going to have our first boy, John, and I remember two months before she was due to deliver, I had a very erratic sleeping pattern. All I could think about in the middle of the night was, what is he going to look like? What is his personality going to be? I had so much excitement and joy, I couldn't contain myself. I couldn't believe that God grants us the greatest gift, another human being to be responsible for. And I remember one time, um, I was changing his diaper, and, and I got a little cocky, you know, a little too confident, and I decided to change his diaper on the master bed. Okay? I changed his diaper. While I'm changing his diaper, he decides to go pee. And I panic. I'm freaking out. Changing table, no problem. But I, I panicked. I wasn't thinking. And I ran straight to the master bathroom. Couple steps, not far. I grab napkins, grab whatever I can. I run back. And he fell on the floor. He rolled off the bed. All I can do was think about what a terrible father I am. How awful I am. How do I allow this to happen? And I, I picked him up, I checked his head, and out of, in my head, I could not get out of it that for sure something happened to him. I'm not, trusting in the, I'm not trusting in the love of God, I'm trusting in myself. I know there has to be something wrong with him. I call Shireen, and I said, you know what, I'm going to send him to the emergency room, see, see talk some sense into me. I want to talk to the doctor. I go, I have to make sure nothing happened. I, have to, I want an x-ray. I want to, uh, whatever it is to check his brain to make sure he's okay. I couldn't get out of my head. And, I, and it, it, was, it was striking me for days. I couldn't get out of my head that I had to have something wrong with him. I couldn't believe that God took care of it. I believed that the sin was greater than the love of God. Another incident was with Joseph. Uh, He was on the tricycle, and I usually take him around the block on the tricycle um, after school. And he was at the top of the driveway, and you know how the driveway is slanted. And I said, stay here. He's a very young toddler. That was ridiculous. So after the third child, I'm still not learning. I go into the car, and I said, I'm going to go into the car, close the garage, and run back out. As I run into the car, I can hear the rolls going down the driveway. And I'm freaking out. I already know in the back of my mind I'm not going to make it. But I'm going anyway. So I go around the car the other way, and he's already tumbled over three times. His entire mouth was just blood. I don't see his lips. And the Holy Spirit took over. I ran in the garage, took ice in the fridge or in the freezer, I put it on his mouth, and I remember him crying bloody murder, but I didn't take it off his mouth for 40 minutes. I had to make sure it got fully numb, didn't bleed, and then we, I grabbed some snacks, and we continued. The difference is, after the third child, I realized God has this. 
It's beyond me. I no longer can do anything about this. I just have to trust that God took care of this. I have to stop relying on self. And the third incident is one I don't like to talk about, but it really drives the point. It was our first sleepover with the cousins. And we had a big logging cabin with all the families. In the middle of the night, our boy was crying. And I can hear like the rustling in the other rooms. They know that it's our child. It's obvious. And I remember going in the closet and putting, like, um, trying to like cover up his mouth and like stop him from crying. I'm just trying to hide the noise. And then one of the cousins walks in. It was like, at, I don't know, it was super early in the morning. And she looks at me and I'm just crying. I just remember this very well. I was just crying because I just ruined the whole, you know, family trip. And she looks at me and she sees me looking at my child. And I said, you know what? I'm so sorry. I don't know how to fix this. And I'm so sorry. It's my fault, but I love him so much. I didn't want him to miss this. I'm so sorry. And she said something that I still remember. She says, you have to remember to forgive yourself. And this is what we're called to do. We are called to go out there and tell others, you have to remember to forgive yourself. Because it's not God holding on to the sin. It's you. And the reason you're holding on to sin is because you're depending on self instead of on the reliance of our creator. And this is the importance and power of the church sacrament of confession and repentance. We can't drive this enough. It reminds us that, and I'm going to say this three times because I want us to remember it. God is an endless ocean of mercy. God is an endless ocean of mercy. God is an endless ocean of mercy. That is why we can forgive ourselves. And the second thing I want to talk about is pride. If we read the slide, kind of, um, it says, for the righteous may fall seven times and rise again. His compassions fail not, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I I hope in him. What is the text highlighting? What is the big print on this slide that you kind of see? What is the focus here? The rise. But all too often, what do we focus on? What do I focus on? Focus on the fall. Why sometimes in our lives that the fall seems more important and has more weight than the rise from it? Because this is not our faith. This does not come from God, this discouragement. The focus on fall is because of us. It's because of pride, ego, Because there's two harsh realities when we think of fall that we can't avoid from the beginning of creation. Our separation from God and our fallen state, that we're imperfect, that we have frailty. And that's a harsh reality for us because there are times in our lives where we 
get our ego and our pride bruised. We, are, we have a surreal image of our fallen state. And what, every time we sin, what does it remind us of? That we cannot escape our humanity. No matter what you do in your life, you're human. There's nothing you're going to do that's going to change that. You can pretend as perfect as you want that, you're, that you are never going to sin again, that it's never going to happen again. I'm never going to commit the same sin twice. But then God says, you're human. You can't escape it. So if we can't escape it, what do we do? We do the reverse. We embrace it. We embrace our humanity because it was given to us from God. And it has its purpose. It makes us grow in him. The humanity is just the beginning. It is in him that we rise. We are in the fallen state, but it's in him that we're rising. And so uh, Father uh, John Delby says, therefore never be discouraged by your faults. Begin by not being astonished by them. A little child, which we're going to kind of bring up a couple times, who does not know how to walk is not astonished at stumbling and falling with each step he takes. So the first step is the realization of our frailty, the realization of our imperfections. Okay? Do not be astonished by your sin. It's going to happen. It's how we react to it that makes all the difference. An Orthodox priest once said, the fall is just part of the process of reaching higher levels of spirituality. Moving forward often means being thrown back. Purification and humility come with temptations and falls. Trust and reliance come by finding our human efforts faltering again and again and again. We need to be at peace with these experiences, trusting that God's ways are not our ways and discern how to respond to them. We were not created to have our attention and focus on our sins and imperfections. Rather, we were created to rely on our creator who was perfect. Our faith is based on the rise and the resurrection of Christ, not on the fall of mankind and our own death, our own mortality. You know, Abuna Krulis once said, and he said this in the men's book club, highly encouraged for you to attend. Our faith is determined by how quickly we shift from our fallen state, fallen state to our risen state. How does that look like for us? How quickly do we, we move? Because if we are completely in tune with our faith, we know the fall has no place for us. Yes, we're going to fall. It's going to happen. It's a roller coaster ride, and we're going to fall a lot. But how long are we going to dwell on it? Because what are we supposed to look at? The newness of Christ. We are going to now look at how we're going to rise. That's what our focus is on. Because if we just focused on the fall, 
and focused on Christ's crucifixion and death, it says the most pitiful to humanity, if that's where it ends, then Christ came for nothing. He died in vain. We have no Christian faith. But we know that he resurrected, and that is our responsibility. Don't make him die for nothing. He died not for us to focus on the death, but because he conquered death. And that is what we're supposed to do every moment of our lives, is how quickly can we go from the fallen state to the risen state? That's our jobs, is to remember what he already did for us. And we see our hope when we place our faith, obedience, submission, whatever you want to call it, in the risen Christ, rather than in the fallibility, the fallibility, the fall of humanity. We see it all throughout scriptures. We see it in the prophets of the Old Testament, and we see it in Christ in the New Testament. What do we see in this theme? We see it in Moses, hit the rock twice, couldn't go into the promised land. But is he remembered for that? No. He what? He guided, took the Israelites to the promised land. King David, who fell countless times in scripture. And what does God say about him? God doesn't focus on that. What does he say? A man after my own heart. And he wrote the Psalms. That is our, what, poem of repentance. That's why Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. It says in Genesis 7. A couple chapters later in Genesis 12, it says, So Abram, who is Abraham, as the Lord had told him, he did. What are we seeing here? A continuous theme through these Old Testament prophets of complete abandonment of self. They fell, and they fell hard, but is that what God remembers? When God says, God remembered Noah, is he remembering that? He's remembering what? Our connection with him, how we go back to him every single time. And this is why obedience, submission, is considered by many of the church fathers as one of the greatest virtues to obtain. And this is something um, I read often. And we're we're almost done. I apologize. Sister Ruth Burrow says the following. Strive for perfection is uh, is the most disastrous of the mistakes good people fall into. It feeds the very vice it intends to destroy. Most fervent souls are prepared to give God any mortal thing. Work themselves to death. Anything but surrender into his loving hands. You must become as little children whose one virtue is that they know they are unimportant, imperfect. And... Um, if we're ever feeling uh, in, in our lives where the burden is just too great, the sin is just this huge boulder, I just can't get it out of my mind. 
you're just feeling really down, read John 11. It's amazing. Because he says something, and he says it several times to remind us. So in John 11, in this scene, here we see Jesus going into the town of Bethany after Lazarus has been dead four days. And he is greeted by his sisters, Martha and Mary. And you will see here in this dialogue that Jesus is constantly reminding the sisters of who he is and they're not getting it. And I want us to put ourselves in the situation of Martha and Mary. And hear how the dialogue goes. Pay attention to this. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now look how she, re- look how she uh, responds. So Christ says, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the res- resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am, not I was before Lazarus died, not that I will on judgment day, on the last day, no. I am the resurrection. What is that telling us? It's now, it's present, it's in every moment of our life is resurrection. It wasn't one moment in time. When we celebrate it up here, it's happening. It is what creation was singing about. It's what Revelations is talking about. All of scripture is telling us what? The resurrection is at hand. It's now and it's forever and it's going to be here for eternity. And if we can remember that, then we don't hold on to our past and we don't burden ourselves to the future. We focus on present moment. Now is our salvation. Now is the resurrection. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And then here's how she responds again. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. She got it half right. I am the resurrection. So what does he say? Yeah, I believe you're a Messiah. You're the anointed. So she knows who he is, but do you know what I can do for you? You're not getting the point. You know who I am. Yes, I am the Messiah. But what is my purpose? What am I here for? To save you. That's the purpose. That's the message of all of Scripture. The fall by man, Moses, Noah, Make all the prophet list. They've all fallen. But then, why does the scripture show their, their frailty, their fallibility? Because they're going to do what? They're going to rise in Christ. That's the purpose. It says, therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life, every moment of our life. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day, I would even say moment by moment. St. Anthony, every day I say to myself, today 
I will begin. What do we read in the book of hours? Agabeah, what does it say in the first hour? What is it in remembrance of? Our Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It is prayed in the morning after rising from sleep. What's sleep? A short death. To thank God for the beginning of a new day and to glorify him in his resurrection. And I will end with this. I'm sorry I took up your time. I apologize. I really wish you can read this, so I'm going to have to read it to you. It is only we who brood over our sins. God does not brood over them. God dumps them at the bottom of the sea. What sea are we talking about here? The endless mercy, or sorry, the endless ocean of mercy. That's the sea. Will we ever fill the sea with our sins? No. It's an endless ocean of mercy. And it's at the bottom. And it's a grain of dust. And I'm going to end with this by St. John Vianney. It says, God's greatest pleasure is to pardon us. The good Lord is more eager to pardon a repentant sinner than a mother to rescue her child from the fire. Our faults are grains of sand beside the great mountain of the mercies of God. God, at the moment of absolution, throws our sins over his back. He forgets them. He annihilates them. They shall never reappear. And glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. Um, I apologize. I, I stayed a little bit longer than I wanted to. Um, was there any questions? Any questions? All right, let's stand up for prayer.